You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 9. We will uh, be in both Proverbs 1-7 and Proverbs 9-10 that Imlim just read for us. And those verses say uh, essentially the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the starting place and staying place of wisdom. And so there's a word in uh, that verse that we have to talk about this morning. We started a, a sermon series on wisdom a few weeks ago, and we said that wisdom is living in God's world in God's way. And wisdom, according to Proverbs 8, which is largely what was just read during the, the video, uh, wisdom's thread throughout God's world. When he created, God created uh, with wisdom as this ordering force behind creation. And so you can find wisdom all over God's world. You can find it in just laws, and you can find it in a beautifully decorated space, and you can find it in a word rightly spoken. Wisdom helps us know how to live within the complexity of life. And so wisdom is not just about doing what's right or wrong, but doing what's best, even when right and wrong don't apply. And so wisdom uh, helps us suffer well, and it, it helps us do conflict well, and wisdom helps us know how to respond when our kid comes home from school and they were bullied, and wisdom has, helps us know how to exist well in our marriages and exist well in our singleness, right? Wisdom has a posture, it's low. Wisdom has a pace, it's slow. We become wise over time. And wisdom has a person, it's Jesus. We uh, become wise in relationship with him because Jesus is wisdom personified. That's all the first two weeks. There's something essential to wisdom, though, that we've not given much attention to. And in a way, we've talked about its essence, but it needs our complete attention this morning. In some ways, it ties together everything that we've said. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, There is something that if you don't have it, you have no shot of becoming wise. If becoming wise is like opening a door, the fear of the Lord are the hinges that that door moves on. Without it, there is no wisdom. So we've said the last two weeks that you can take the book of Proverbs and you can break it up into two large parts. The Proverbs, the actual proverbial sayings, are chapters 10 through 31. Chapters 1 through 9 are, are, are just an argument trying to make us care. Chapters 1 through 9 are are all about making the case for why you should want to become wise and why you should not want to be foolish. And in chapter 1, when that argument starts, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then in chapter 9, as that argument ends, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That claim bookends Proverbs' argument for making us want to become wise. But there's a word that we don't like, right? There's a word that's confusing that needs explained. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the word that causes problems? Fear. How different does the sentence land if it says the love of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Or uh, worshiping the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? It doesn't say that. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you know what that word in Hebrew means? Fear. And maybe it's just me, but I've been a Christian for almost three decades now, and it has, this idea has always caused pause for me. Like, I've always been a little confused. What does it mean to fear the Lord? And, and I feel like I've come by that confusion, honestly. First uh, John says that God is love. Why would you fear love? Uh, in fact, that same letter seems to say, don't fear love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. 
Not to mention that the most repeated command in Scripture, you know what it is? Do not be afraid. And so in response to this confusion, the phrase fear of the Lord is kind of this awkward thing, right? We don't quite know what to do with it. It's become a bit archaic. We don't say it a lot. I I don't say it a lot. And I could be wrong, but you probably haven't been sharing prayer requests lately and heard like, hey, I have a sick family member, also pray for some job stuff. Oh, and would you pray that my fear of the Lord would increase? We don't really talk about that. That's, 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 somehow it has aged itself out, at least of, of my conversations about following Jesus, because it's confusing uh, and, and it's intimidating. And yet, for people who want to become wise, it's unavoidable. It's not just in Proverbs. David prays in Psalm 86, teach me your way, O Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. And it's not just in the Old Testament. Jesus' mom in Luke chapter 1 sings a song to God and says, your mercy is for those who fear you. So what do we do with this? Like, it seems that fear is something the Bible says to stay away from, and then it also seems like the Bible says fear is something that's really important if you want to become wise and, and you want to respond to God. Well, According to the Bible, there are different kinds of fear. That's what has to be true. There are different kinds of fear. There is a kind of fear that makes you foolish, and there's a kind of fear that makes you wise. To say it another way, there is an ungodly fear, and there is a godly fear. And this morning, I want to talk about both because we need to understand both to know what is meant by the fear of the Lord, what it is, and and maybe more importantly, what it's not. Um, And just cards on the table... As I've thought about how to do this together, I've found it really, really challenging. Um, It's really complicated. Part of it's because of the climate right now. Fear is a four-letter word in our culture, and it's got a lot of baggage. And so what I've struggled to do is I've struggled to say, okay, well, um, you know, how do we untether the idea of fear from all of the, the cultural baggage and personal baggage and without saying less than what needs to be said, right? So it's like maybe what you'd expect right now is that Jamin's going to say, oh, well, fear is more like respect of God. It's like, well, yes, but no, it's not just that. Uh, Or maybe fear is more just like a a sense of of appreciation to God. And and yes, but it's, it's, it's fear. It's bigger than that. Sometimes when I feel stuck like this, I'll ask myself this question. As, a, as when I feel stuck like this as a preacher, as a communicator, I'll ask myself this question. How would I explain this to my kids? Now, that might sound patronizing. I don't, I don't mean it like that. Um, for some of you, I could be your child. Um, if I was forced to try and understand it myself in a way that makes sense, if I explained it to my kids, what would that look like? And that's the question I'm asking. If I'm trying to explain to them what's the fear that makes you foolish and what's the fear that makes you wise and what's the ungodly kind and what's the godly kind and really what is the fear of the Lord. And what I came up with is a parable, a story that I made up. It's a fictitious story. And in that story, it teaches a theology of fear, if you will. And I wrote it down and I told it to my kids and they thought it was just okay. And so... (laughs) Um, I'd like to share it with you, um, but what that's going to require is that's going to require that you use your imagination a bit. Is that okay? You don't have a choice. Here we go. (laughs) Imagine a kingdom. When I told my kids, I told them to imagine a kingdom from one of the books that we've read. We've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and we've read The Lord of the Rings, mostly because I want my kids to be really popular. And... (laughs) 
So I said, imagine one of those kinds of kingdoms from one of those kinds of fairy tales, one of those kinds of books. You got it? Okay. Now imagine there's a king over the kingdom, and he's responsible for all of it. He created all of it. Everything in the kingdom is under his control, and he's strong, and he's creative, and he's powerful, and he's mighty, and he's a warrior, and his enemies are no match for him, but he's also a poet, and his words will be around forever, and so he's unmatched in creativity, and unmatched in power, and unmatched in strength. He has said about himself that he is good and loving. The king is incredible. Imagine that king. Now imagine three people are chosen to meet the king. They live in his kingdom, but they've never met him, and they've been invited by special invitation. The king wants to spend time with you. And so they're brought by one of the king's servants into this massive room in the king's castle, huge pillars so tall that you can't see the top of them, and one of those rooms that that you're in, and it makes you feel like you're the smallest human that's ever lived. And they're told to wait in the center of the room, and soon the doors would open, and the king would come in. And before the servant leaves, he looks at him and says, the king can't wait to meet you. The three people stand in silence for a moment. Then one of them, whose name is Fearful, turns and and sees through a window in the room that the sky had turned gray and the storm clouds had rolled in. And Fearful leaves the center of the room where they were supposed to stay waiting for the king and goes to look out the window. And the closer Fearful gets to the window, the more afraid they become. And fearful begins to worry, oh no, what if it storms? What if the storm is bad? What if it floods my house? And fearful forgets why they were there, forgets about the king, and becomes consumed with what they can do to avoid the storm or protect themselves from the storm. Then the second person, whose name is Faithless, begins to look around the room and sees that on the back wall is a painting of the king. And he's curious. He wants to know what the king looks like. And so Faithless goes to it. And the artist who had done the painting was an enemy of the king. He hated the king. And so he painted the king with a scowl on his face. His mouth was sharp. His eyes were angry. And Faithless was troubled by what he saw. He had heard the king was kind, but in the painting he didn't look kind. He had heard the king uh, was good, but, but, but in the painting he looked mean. And he knew the king was a warrior and he had defeated his enemies. And so he began to wonder, what if he's mean to me? What if he's angry with me? What if he hates me? And so Faithless moves further and further away from the center of the room to where he's standing right in front of this portrait, this distorted picture with his back towards the doors. The third person is the only one left in the center of the room. By the way, my kids had stopped listening by now, (laughs) like some of you. (laughs) The third person is named God-fearing, and their eyes are fixed on the doors. And then all of a sudden, the doors open, and the king walks in, and he is everything everyone said he was. There was a beauty to him and a seriousness to him and a grandeur to him. And he comes in and he makes the large room seem small. His presence is overwhelming, but his face is kind. And fearful by the window is so consumed with the storm that they don't notice the king has entered the room. 
And faithless in the back is so afraid of the picture, he keeps his back to the king. He knows he's there, but he's scared if he turns around, he'll discover that he is who the painting says that he is. And so he's afraid, but God-fearing, stays in the center. He knows about the storm, but he's more concerned about the king. He knows about the painting, but he chooses to believe what the king has said about himself instead of who others have portrayed him to be. And as the king moves towards God-fearing, the king's walking in the room, getting closer and closer, there is something about the king that makes God-fearing want to be close to him, and yet there's something about himself that makes that seem impossible. And so his legs get shaky, and he gets weak-kneed, and he bends to his knees, and he feels the closer the king gets. He feels the difference between he and the king, and it's like a weight that forces his eyes down, and the only thing he feels worthy to do is stare at the ground. Then, God-fearing feels the hand of the king lift his face and welcomes his eyes on his kindness. And the king looks at him and says, I am looking forward to getting to know you. And at that moment of being overwhelmed and welcomed, trembling and received, God-fearing melts into surrendered wonder and reverence and worship. The end. You're dismissed. In that room, in those three characters, you have the fear that makes you foolish and the fear that makes you wise. The king represents God. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Then you have two characters by the window and in the back that represent ungodly fear and one that shows us the fear of the Lord. Let's talk about each of them. Let's work the room together and see if we can find ourselves somewhere in here. We'll start with fearful by the window, staring at the storm. Here's what fearful represents. Fearful represents an ungodly fear of life. This is the kind of fear that when the Bible says, do not be afraid, it's talking about this kind of fear. It's an ungodly response to the scary things in life. Life is scary. And there's a healthy kind of fear to the scary things in life, right? Like the fear that makes you move out of the way of a car, that's a good fear. But for fearful, it's not that the storms aren't scary. It's that the thing fearful is afraid of has a greater hold on their life than the king. So the ungodly response to fear is where fear takes the place of God. My life orbits around the things that I'm afraid of when my life was meant to orbit around God, meaning my life becomes all about avoiding my fears or protecting myself from my fears so that I either ignore or use God. And for fearful, it means I'm always focused on what's happening outside of the window, and I never turn my attention to who's in the room. And that's the kind of fear that the Bible says, don't be afraid. And we live in a culture right now, friends. I I don't think our hearts need any help with this, but we live in a culture that is obsessed with avoiding fear. It's obsessed with staring out of the window, trying to figure out how to avoid the storm. If we said two weeks ago that our culture is confused about truth, the other equally true description is that our culture is afraid of life. Afraid of life. Michael Reeves is a theologian. He's an author. He wrote a book about the fear of the Lord called Rejoice and Tremble. It's excellent. You should read it. Um, and, and so much of what I've said and will say is influenced by his book. Uh, it's short. But he has an even shorter version. If you don't like long books, he's an even shorter version called uh, What is the Fear of the Lord? If you don't have money for the book, let me know, and Bleeker will buy it for you. Okay? Just, <laughs> you should read the book. He says this about our culture. These days, it seems everyone is talking about a culture of fear, from Twitter to television. 
We fret about global terrorism, extreme weather, pandemics, political turmoil. In political campaigns and elections, we routinely see fear rhetoric used by politicians who recognize that fear drives voting patterns. And in our digitalized world, the speed at which information and news are disseminated means that we are flooded with more causes of worry than ever, surrounded, inundated with more causes to fear than ever. And we've responded to that by trying to get rid of fear itself. Reeves goes on, he says this, yet that attempt to eradicate fear, as we would eradicate a disease, has effectively made comfort, the complete absence of fear, a health category, or even a moral category. Where discomfort was once considered quite normal, it is now deemed an essentially unhealthy thing. So now, in response to all that, the comfort is a health category. You aren't really living unless you're comfortable. It's also a moral category. You should never be made uncomfortable. It's wrong to be uncomfortable. So watch this. We have constant access to things that are scary. Fear has been digitalized and sent into all of our homes, right? And at the same time, the absence of fear has become the new standard for health and morality. So we live in this impossible trap. Here are the things you should be afraid of and they assault you every day. But don't let that make you uncomfortable because comfort is the goal. And the only way that works, friends, is if somehow we are able to protect ourselves from everything we fear. And we can't. So Reeves says this. It's scathing. When your culture is hedonistic, your religion therapeutic, and your goal a feeling of personal well-being, fear will be the ever-present headache. Hedonistic culture, meaning uh, pleasure is the purpose and it's self-fulfilling. I do what's right in my own eyes. Religion is therapeutic, maybe, meaning maybe there is a God, but if there is, he only exists to help me manage discomfort in my life. And so my relationship with God is less worship relationship and it's more of a therapeutic relationship. It's less surrender and obedience and more spiritualized coping. Goal is a feeling of personal well-being. My great aim in life, my purpose in life, orbits around my own well-being. And what, what, what many of us mean by that is simply a comfortable life. Okay, when the culture is pleasure-seeking and religion is pain-pacifying and the goal of life is pain-avoiding, what do you get? Fear. Constant, incessant fear. A life lived in the corner of the room staring at storms we can't control. We are the most medically, technologically, scientifically advanced society in the history of the world. And that has solved real problems, and that's been a common grace in real ways, and that's protected people, but it has largely also amounted to a culture that has tried and failed to achieve immortality, and we're freaking out about it. We're still vulnerable, and we know it. We can't keep our loved ones from getting hurt like we wish we could. We can't protect our businesses. We can't protect our money like we wish we could. We can't protect ourselves from illness like we wish we could. We can't protect relationships from conflict like we wish we could. We can't achieve the state of comfort that our world tells us is the whole point of life. And those are just external. There's an internal storm we all have to try and avoid. We can't protect ourselves from becoming the things about ourselves that we fear. We try and protect from being limited. What if I can't do it all? And we try to protect from being rejected. What if I'm not loved by all? And we try to protect ourselves from failure. What if I'm not good at everything? And all of that 
is an ungodly fear of life. It's exactly what the Bible is after when it says don't be afraid. And that kind of fear makes us foolish. It makes us foolish because that's not what life is about. It's not why you're here. It's not why I'm here. Life is about living in God's world in God's way. The point of life is to enjoy God. But we live in a world, and many have bought into a belief that, that, that life is, the point of life is about avoiding storms, which leads to a kind of fear that makes us foolish, that ignores God and uses God, which means I'm not living for God, and that's what, that's what fools do. And it misses goodness, goodness. It misses this uniquely beautiful feature of the Christian life, that there is a life God offers where we can have the kind of closeness to him and the kind of fear of him that makes us able to enjoy God and endure storms at the same time. Fearful, the ungodly fear of life, rejects that invitation and says, I would rather stay by the window. Faithless is in the back of the room back towards the king, staring at a distorted portrait of the king. If fearful by the window represents an ungodly fear of life, faithless represents an ungodly fear of God. Please lean in. Listen to these verses. Exodus 20, 18 through 20 says this. The people have God have been rescued from Egypt. They're at the mountain. They've been given the Ten Commandments. And then verse 18 it says this. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning the sound of the ram's horn and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people. Listen to this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. Did you hear it? Don't be afraid of God. Instead, fear God. 1 Samuel 12, Samuel replied, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They're worthless. Then verse 24, above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. Don't be afraid of God. Instead, fear God. Ungodly fear is afraid of God. Godly fear fears the Lord. What's the question? How do you know the difference? What's the difference between ungodly fear and godly fear? What's the difference between being afraid of God and fearing the Lord? Being afraid of God, the ungodly fear of God, the essential feature of it is that it leads to a distance from God. Run from God. In Exodus, they stood at a distance, and so Moses speaks to their distance and says, Don't be afraid, come close. And Samuel says, don't be afraid. And then what would being afraid look like, according to Samuel? Turning away, running from God, following worthless things. So the invitation is there's something about God that will allow you to come close, even in sin, to move towards God. But the ungodly fear of God says, I can't. I can't. Revelation 21 calls this fear faithlessness. Because it doesn't believe about God what he has said about himself. doesn't have the faith that he is the kind of God who can receive broken and sinful people. So where is faithless? In the back of the room. Far from the king. Knows that the king is there but cannot turn from the distorted picture. The picture is not how the king has portrayed himself but how someone else has. But see this. It's the distorted view that has one faithless heart. 
He's putting his faith in this distorted picture of the king. And so the king is the cold one. He's the cruel one. He would never forgive me. He would never welcome me. So my only option is to stay far from him. And what faithless can't do is can't by faith turn and dare to believe that the king is kind like he says he is. Last week, Adam Hawkins and I went to spend some time with a mentor of ours. He's a, he pastors in, in St. Louis, and so we flew there. And on the way back in the St. Louis airport, we were going through security. And, and as I walked through the scan thing, a TSA agent comes up to me and says, excuse me, sir, you have been randomly selected by TSA for a screening. Would you please come with me? And I thought, what a blessing that is. <laughs> Little old me chosen randomly for that. <laughs> Praise God. He asked me for my phone, and he took it, and he did some sort of scan on my phone, and then he did the wand thing and, and started scanning me, and uh, that's a vulnerable moment, right? Um, I felt some slight embarrassment. People are, are watching, and, but you know what I didn't feel? Fear. I wasn't afraid. There's a brief moment where I wondered if Adam had planted something incriminating in my bag, <laughs> but he, he had promised he'd never do that again, so I thought, <laughs> I wasn't afraid. You know why I wasn't afraid? I had nothing to hide, nothing to hide. There was nothing on my phone, nothing in my bag, nothing in my clothes, nothing on my person that would get me in trouble, nothing that they would discover that would be cause for punishment or, or, or me being detained or being kept off my flight so I could stand the TSA scrutiny, I could stand the search because I had nothing to hide and because I had nothing to hide, there was no fear and the TSA guy looked at me and he said, you're good, you can go. And I think that many of us might believe, what we might believe is that that is the only way to actually be right with God. Even if you've heard different all your life, like you've heard he's loving and he's gracious, but what I believe is I'm not really safe. I'm not really right with him until I can stand before him, innocent before all scrutiny, until I can have my phone searched and my thoughts searched and my words searched and my past searched and my very heart searched and have nothing to hide, until I can withstand that search and be told by God, you're good to go. But here's what we all know. That's not possible. I can't withstand the scrutiny of God. The more he searches, the more he will discover. I may be able to fool others, but I can't fool God. I'm exposed before him. And so, friends, lean in. This is the difference between finding him and missing him. Being afraid of God is in that moment believing he will look at me, and instead of saying you are good, you can go, he will see all the bad, and he will see all the pride, and he will see all the lust and all the selfishness, and he'll say, you're filthy, I can't stand you, because his face wears a scowl, his mouth is sharp, and his eyes are angry. And if that's who he is, and if that's what he says, your only option's to run. My only option's to run. If he's mean, if he's cruel, if he's cold, you can't stay near him. And that kind of ungodly fear of him, you know what it makes us? Foolish. And maybe that foolishness looks like rebellion. I'm not going to obey someone who's perpetually angry with me, right? I, I cannot love a God like that, and so I will live in my world, in my way, I'll do what's right in my own eyes because that's better than living under God's angry eyes. Or that foolishness can come out, and, and maybe this is more true for a room like this, that foolishness can come out as self-righteousness, where I am doing the right things, but it's because I'm afraid of God. 
I'm not after love-motivated obedience. I'm just responding to his scowl. And that's not wisdom. That's living in an angry God's world in my fearful way. But if it's true, if the distorted picture is reality, that's the only option. What if? What if it's not who he is? Like the question I would have for faithless is this. Man, who painted that picture for you? Was it legalistic parents, a graceless church, a God-hating world, a self-condemning heart? Who told you he was like that? Who told you his mouth is sharp? Who told you his eyes are angry? Who told you your only option is to run? It wasn't God. It wasn't God. God says about himself that it's his kindness that leads to repentance. He made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so he searches all of us, yes, and he sees all of us, yes, but if you belong to Jesus, he doesn't look and say, you're good, you can go. He's too honest. He also, though, doesn't look and say, you're filthy, I can't stand you. He sees all the mess, and he sees all the sin, and all that you can't hide, and he says, you are mine, never leave. You're mine, never leave. And if that's who he is, that's the kind of God that you want to move towards, not run from. And that's the difference between being in the back of the room or being in the center with the king. Friends, the essential nature of what the fear of the Lord is, a godly fear of God, is that when we see God, we see him as both great and gracious. And in response to his greatness and grace, we move closer to him closer to him. Like God-fearing in the center of the room, we want to remain where he is. We're drawn toward him by the fear of the Lord. I need to show you that in Scripture. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. What a God! Forgiveness, cleansing. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise in a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all of the good and prosperity I provide. Do you see it? Their fear is in response to what? God's goodness. His kindness in response to their sin. And not only that, but his forgiveness, it brings joy and, and glory and good. And what's the right response to that? Fear. Psalm 33, 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. What does it look like to fear God? To hope in his steadfast love. It's all I've got in this life, and so I'm moving towards God. Reeves, in his book, when he sums up what the fear of the Lord is, after a survey of all the pertinent passages, he says, The fear of the Lord is the way the Bible describes the intense love believers have for God. The living God, he says, is infinitely perfect and quintessentially overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. What a sentence. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy, his all. And so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. In a sense, then, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saints' love for and enjoyment of all that God is. You see, there is a God over this world, and he's responsible for all of it. He created all of it. Everything in this world is under his control, 
and he's strong and he's creative and he's powerful and he's mighty and he's a warrior. His enemies are no match for him. He's also a poet and his words will be around forever. He's unmatched in creativity and unmatched in power and unmatched in strength and we are none of those things. We're not like him. We're not good like he is, not complete like he is. We're not holy like he is. And so there are these things about him that make us want to be close to him. And and yet there are these things about us that make that seem impossible. And yet it's like we're on the floor. And the only thing we feel worthy to do is to stare at the ground. But the good news about this God is that he's both great and gracious. And his nail-pierced hand will lift our face and welcome our eyes on his kindness. And he'll tell us he loves us. And he knows everything about us. You are mine, never leave. So being overwhelmed and welcomed, trembled and received, live lives that are forever melting into surrendered wonder and reverence and love and worship. How wonderful is our God, all glory and honor and power and praise be to our God forever and ever. That is the fear of the Lord. I am so taken by his greatness and grace that I want to move towards him in all of my life. You know what that makes us? Wise. I want to move towards God with my worship. And I want to move towards him with my relationships. And I want to move towards him in my suffering. And I want to move towards him with my gifts. And I want to move towards him with my money. And I want to move towards him with my words. I want to stay low before him. And I want to stay close to him. I want to live in his world, in his way. That's the fear that makes us wise. Overwhelmed by both greatness and grace so that we move towards him with all that we are. I need to ask you something. Where are you in the room? Are you over by the window, controlled by an ungodly fear of life? Are you back by the distorted picture, feeling condemned by an ungodly fear of God? Or are you in the center of the room, moving towards God, humbled by the fear of the Lord? Would you do something? Would you bow your head and just assume a a posture of prayer with me? I want to continue speaking. And so if you'd continue listening. But if we could just... Assume a posture of prayer and then listen for what God might have for us. Because I don't think the story ends. I think what God would do, what the king would do, is he would move around the room and in his kindness he would move towards those who are fearful, those who are faithless. And so where are you in the room? And maybe what you'd say is, I am fearful. I am stuck by the window. I think God would move towards you and he would maybe say something to you like this. Would you listen? I know life is scary. I don't expect you to never be afraid. I just expect you to never try and face your fears without me. Without my words, without my presence. And I would invite you to never forget that what you most have to fear, I've already protected you from. You don't have to be afraid of your weaknesses. That's the very place my strength is perfected. You don't have to be afraid of being alone. I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. And I know death is scary. I've been through it. But I conquered it. And with me, so will you. So come away from the window. Come away from the window. 
Move close to me and let's navigate the scary things of life together. Don't waste your life simply trying to avoid what you fear. There's a way to endure storms and enjoy me at the same time. Where are you in the room? And maybe you'd say, I just feel like I can't get away from the picture. So you're frozen in the back of the room, stuck, staring at the scowl. And if that's you, I believe God would move towards you and he'd say something like this. That's not me. It's not. And then knowing your heart and knowing your past, maybe he would say something really specific to you like, I know your dad is a harsh man, but I'm not him. Or I know your preacher growing up was really angry, but that's not me. Or maybe he would call out the specific lies you believe, like, hey, I'm not waiting for you to clean yourself up and pick yourself up. I'm simply waiting for you to turn around and fall into grace and forgiveness. Or maybe he would speak, maybe he would speak to specific sins that haunt you and say something like this. There's forgiveness for your affair. There's grace for your addiction. Maybe he'd look you in the eyes and say, I'm not angry at you for still being depressed. Maybe he'd put a hand on your shoulder and say, your anxiety does not disqualify you from my love. And in all of that, what our God is after is he is after replacing the distorted picture with the face of Jesus, who's the image of the invisible God. He is the kind king. He is the lifter of faces, even yours. I told my son the parable, and at the end of it, he gave me some pointers for how to make the story better. Then he said, hey, I have a question, Dad. He said, the king in the story, that's Jesus, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, he said, do you think when I see him someday, instead of kneeling down, it would be okay to run to him? And I said, yes, I think Jesus would like that. And he said, what do you think he would do? I said, I think he would pick you up, and I think he would give you the best hug you've ever had. And he just smiled. And in that moment, I understood that he understood the fear of the Lord even better than me. Can I run to him instead? Yes. My friend, wherever you are, whatever fear marks your life, so can you. Move towards him, run to him, fear him. He is great and gracious. He knows you and wants to be with you. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We thank you, God, for your grace. We need you, God. We need you. We prayed a, a, a bold prayer this morning before the room filled and, and just prayed, God, that what you would do this morning is you would allow by your mercy and grace the godly fear that the fear of the Lord would just settle over us this morning. And it might come out of our lives as confession and worship and reverence and an intensity of the saints' love for you. And we ask, God, that you would, by your grace and mercy, that you would drive out all the ungodly fear and drive out all the fear of life. 
that you would look at your sons and daughters and you'd pull us from the window and you'd pull us from the picture and you'd center us before you, God, that we might be whole, that we might be confident, that we might be humbled, that we might become wise, God. We need you. It's a waste. It's a waste without you. So would you meet us? So you know me pray. Amen.